Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we discuss, educate and talk about industry news and hot topics, company reviews and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International. With a career covering nearly two decades, Mining International partners with new and junior miners and larger predominant players in the market. With no further ado, here is your host, Rob Tyson. Hi, it's Rob again from the Dig Deep the Mining podcast and today I'm in central London near the Strand where I have another great guest I'm going to chat to who has a long history in the mining sector. Andrew Bell is the Chairman and Chief Executive of Red Rock Resources and Regency Mines um, who are doing various projects around the world in terms of resource exploration and development. Um, they're listed on the London's AIM market um, and he manages a diverse portfolio of mining and oil and gas projects and investments around the world. Andrew's business experience has been around fund management and advisory work with leading financial institutions, international corporate finance work and private equity. And he has a number of company directorships, which I'm sure he will talk about during the cast of this podcast. So first of all, I'd like to welcome Andrew Bell. Hi. Hi, Andrew. Um, so thanks a lot for agreeing to do this podcast. Um, first, I just want to start off um, where I suppose started off early in your career um, when you studied at Eton um, and just wanted to, if you can give a little bit of background on that, you studied obviously history and then how you actually find you, how you actually found your way into the mining industry. Well, it's interesting. Um, yes, I was at Eton and for a long time I thought there was no one else from there who got into the mining and resources sector. And then I did uh, meet Frank Lucas, whose uh, father has monopolized the tungsten industry trading at the end of the war. And so when his son went to university, uh, he sent him to, to Eton, then when his son went to university, he made him study geology and he worked for Roskill as a researcher for a while, then set up his chief corporate finance house. Um, and then very recently, I came across another, which was Gareth Penning, who'd been Chief Executive of De Beers, which is much more distinguished than me, I'm afraid. Yeah. Um, and apart from that, I haven't met many. So uh, how did I get into it? I'm not sure. Yeah. I think what happened was at university, I studied history. And then when I joined an investment bank, which was in 1975, 76, one year after the bottom of the market, when it bottomed at 150 on the uh, uh, stock exchange index, uh, in 1976, I, I joined Morgan Grenfell, and um, they had lost, I think, the previous week their oil analyst. So they made me responsible, among other things, for oil and natural resources in the investment department. I was just going to say, it. did you have a did you have an interest in mining when you were studying studying at uni, or was it just when you actually got your first position? Well, not at all. Uh, I, I arrived there. And to start with, I was mainly looking at oil rather than mining. And the fortunate thing was that the person who just left had worked for Shell. And so he had refused to buy any BP shares. And the easiest decision in the world at that time, just as the North Sea was getting underway, was to go out and buy BP. And if you did so, you were a hero. So I remember the pension funds managed by Morgan for buying about £9 million of BP shares in the very short period after I joined. <laughs> that was an e easy decision. Yeah. Uh, over time, I started to look at the mining sector as well. So I just want to go back. What, what position did you play in those companies? Were you a mining analyst? I was a mining analyst. Okay, yeah. And I did a little bit of corporate finance um, in relation to one or two more CEO companies because Morgan Bradford was big in that. I suppose the um, uh, whether it was because the Chinese walls weren't quite so rigid then or whether we were just trusted, I suppose we were, um, to do work on something and then not let it influence one's business in the investment department. But I got involved in much of these. Yeah. And was the mining uh, industry pretty big or within the company that you were working with? Was it quite a big division? Uh, I think the, uh, the 
Morgan Grenfell had quite a strong presence in North Sea Oil, and they had one or two good mining clients, and so I learned about that. Then I went off and did other things, and it was only years later that when I saw China and India starting to grow, and I'd happened to be doing business in the Far East, and I said to myself, well, here's 40% of the world's population beginning to have an industrial revolution. And from the late 70s uh, to the early 2000s, most minerals had been flat. Copper had been flat, gold had been well, more than flat. It had come down from $900 allowance to $300 to $260 and stuck there for decades. And I thought, well, this growth in those huge markets is actually going to pull all those commodities up. And since I know a bit about the Far East and I know a bit about commodities, maybe I should get back into it. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> yeah. So as a mining analyst, what, are, what is your main purpose? What is your main role? What, what do you try and achieve? Well, um, I think it was useful to have training as an analyst. Yeah. Uh, and it's a pity more people don't have that now. But when I look back on it, I can see that I was far too prone to believe what company management's told me and not to look below the surface. When I look at a a balance sheet and a company's reporting accounts now, I don't take things at face value. I can kind of understand what's actually happening, what might be happening. Um, And since analysts tend to be fairly young um, in general, uh, I think they don't usually have that kind of experience. So I know a lot more. I'm a better analyst now that I spend less time on it than I was then. Yeah. So as an analyst, do you look at the company's accounts and do you also then look at the project in terms of resources, maybe geology and the exploration um, data and sort of collate that together? Or is it purely just looking at the mining company and seeing how they're running as a business? Yeah, I don't think I look as an analyst of very many things these days. Obviously, when we are given opportunities where we might be working with another company, when I'm looking at investing in my own pension fund, for example, I might look at these. But uh, I think that as an AIM investor, uh, looking at the way other people invest in AIM and uh, applying some of the lessons to my own portfolio and uh, applying some of the lessons of my experience, to seeing how people do things in a critical way. I would say that um, when I was younger, everybody used to look at the announcements by companies, the annual report, do quite a lot of analysis and think about it quite deeply before they did anything. Whereas what happens now is people take a rush look at an RNS and quickly they're into a chat room or social media to find out what everyone else who's had a rush look is thinking yeah. which way the cat is jumping uh, without actually bothering to read through to the end, let alone look through two or three times. Now, curiously, my uncle was a mining engineer and he used to invest in a lot of mining companies until the day he died, often buying small stakes in very many of them. And he would always try to invest in things that he knew something about. So his depth of knowledge and anything you invested would be quite yeah. deep. And did you collaborate together at all? No, no. <laughs> there was a difference of generation that was quite marked. Okay, so moving on further in your career, um, how did that develop? How long were you like a mining analyst before then you moved up the, the corporate ladder? Well, I moved to uh, brokerage houses where I did some fund management and ran unit trusts and a pension fund and private client money with them and also did research. And that took me a few years and I was uh, specialising really in Far East markets, which I'd always been interested in in Japan. And so that's, as I say, why my interest in Far East markets and my interest in commodities soon came together in the first half, in about 2004, 2005, when I saw the impact of the growth of those economies uh, was going to have in moving commodity prices off that plateau. Uh, so uh, that, that's the story about how I got back into it. And when I got back in, I couldn't get back into oil because the, um, the entry ticket is a very expensive one. So I got back into, I got into mineral resources 
and rebuilt the Regency at that River Rock. Regency, I suppose, was my first love, um, and we started that early in 2005, we listed it, and in the summer of 2005, as a spin-off, we listed Red Rock, which was focused on steel feed materials, iron ore and manganese at that time, and is still involved in steel feed materials, but got us a second leg in um, gold. Okay. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, before we actually start speaking about uh, Regency Mines and Red Rock Resources, um, I wanted to, just to cover, and I'm sure a lot of the, the um, audience would want to know, what's your, what's your take on the finance and private, private equity arena at the moment? Um, how, how are you seeing the markets? Uh, and in terms of investment in the mining industry, if you can sort of share your take on it. Uh, I think that over-regulation has reduced the amount of good research available in the market and has also damaged the size and liquidity of the market. Um, when the AIM market started, I met um, Simon Quickett, the lawyer who was involved in the start of it, and he was leaving and he forecast to me and the person I was with that um, over time the bureaucracy would get its dead hand onto AIM and it would become uh, over-regulated like everything else. Yeah. Um, and I think, I understand the conundrum that AIM had, which is that you're delegating regulation to the nomads, but at the same time the nomads are paid by the companies. And so they have felt that to to counteract this, the fact that nomads might be looking too anxiously at their, at their um, customers' interests rather than the integrity of the market. Uh, I think they went overboard in trying to regulate the nomads, yeah. which has made nomads into a little better than messenger-wise. Um, and obviously that affects the, the attractiveness of being a nomad. Um, I think that probably there was a solution, which was that you would get companies to pay into a fund from which the appointed nomad would be paid a sort of base level fee, then for special... You, you, there should have been some way around this. Um, but I, my view is... And the other possibility, something you could do, is you could have a management buyout of AIM by the nomads, other interested parties, so it was run as the other stock exchange used to be run, when they would essentially self-regulate. The problem I think you have at the moment is that the stock exchange is always looking at doing huge deals where they're going to merge with some other major market. So I think the instructions going down to AIM regulation is clamp down on everything, close down everything. We don't care if not a blade of grass grows as long as no scandals come out of that. Yeah. Well, I, I think if you give people responsibility, um, then they do a much better job. So in some way, we've got to make the nomads and other people who have an interest in it working right to run the thing. And as I say, I think you know, probably the ideal would be some kind of management buyout. Yeah. Because I don't think the stock exchange gets much revenues or is that interested in it at all. Okay, that's interesting to hear. Um, what about junior miners? Um, what, what would you say they need to do to attract more money? I speak to, obviously, many people in the mining industry on a daily basis and I quite often hear that they're struggling to attract finance. Um, do you think it's something they could be doing? Do you think it's something in the industry at this, at this present time? Um, or is there, is there something else? Well, of course, markets are um, better at raising short-term money than long-term money uh, because people want to make money fast. It's perhaps, it has reached at times unhealthy levels where people go into these stocks hoping to get an immediate run. But there is a, just as in banking, you have a fundamental um, timing difference in that all borrowers, um, well, all, all depositors can ask for their money back straight away, whereas all borrowers borrow on terms, which usually mean that they can't be asked for the money back straight yeah. away. So banks are borrowing short and lending long which is an unsound practice. In a way, too, in the stock market, 
You've got investors who are investing in hopes of immediate return, but in a sector like the mining sector, all the projects are long-term. Yeah, certainly. And that means, I think, that in the life cycle of a typical aim company, uh, you'll get one downturn where they need to raise money because they don't have revenues and where the equity will be effectively wiped out. So my view has been for some time, well, for even at the beginning, is we have to get revenues. We have to get revenues. Yeah. And uh, Red Rock has revenues now and positive cash flow and I think it's profitable. And Regency is heading very fast in a little bit behind because it was mainly in the, the metal that's had the worst experience since 2008. It, it, it peaked in 2000, nickel peaked in 2008, other metals in 2010 generally. The, the nickel bear market ended this year perhaps, which is a year later, or 2016, one of the others bottoms. Um, so you've had a very long bear market and our main asset was in that. So Regents is a little bit behind. Um, but it's heading very quickly in the same direction. It now has revenues, and I think we have profits. And so then you've got two companies which will be self-sustaining from the point of view of uh, meeting their overhead costs, and which can always look at the market conditions and say, well, this is a time for hunkering down and just continuing to do what they do. Yeah. Uh, because we want to avoid that situation where we ever have to raise in a pool market. Yeah. I was going to go, also go on to the banking industry in terms of, again, I hear stories that the banking, the mainstream banking companies are moving away from the mining sector. Uh, I'm not sure for the reasons as to why. Maybe you might be able to clarify, but for instance, junior miners, they probably are looking more at private equity companies yeah. and private investors are moving away from the banks. So why is the banks looking at mining in a, in a different way now? Well, I think banks will never be the front line in terms of putting up money for mining. They'll always want to see a lot of equity in any project that they lend to. Uh, the problem is more on the equity side at the moment. Uh, it's true that probably banks as well as people with equity have been uh, avoiding some investment. They had the experience of 2010 to 2016, which was very bad, a little bit of a recovery since. Um, but now a lot of money being drained out of the financial system in Europe and in America as QE is reversed. Naturally enough, this, these sectors have come back a bit and commodity prices, having had a good run for a year or two, have come back a bit. So capital has been in short supply. My suggestion would be that you're somewhere near a bottom because I think the economy is still growing and the outlook for uh, a lot of uh, minerals is actually quite good. And the lows at the end of 2015, beginning of 2016, weren't just normal cyclical lows, they were extraordinary lows where people couldn't raise money. So we've only had part of what I think is the natural recovery from, from that. So I'd say that you know, there, there are good propositions to be had out there in an environment where the world will continue to grow, but it's not everybody. And I think that a better kind of more informed investor who was, on the one hand, looking a bit longer term, and on the other hand, companies that had clearer strategies for production and revenue generation would be a better mix in the market. Yeah. You mentioned obviously the industry being at the bottom of the market. Um, I suppose from a non-technical finance or mining mining person, myself working in the recruitment industry, I do see the market has been at the bottom and is slowly coming out of a recession type um what it's been facing just more recently over the last four or five years. Do you think that that is the case? Do you think that overall worldwide market is picking up momentum? I think you're seeing a continuation of global growth. Yeah. Um, we may be seeing a slowdown in China, and I think that's sort of natural. Uh, we, we may see the EU making a mistake at the moment of trying to emulate the Fed by reversing QE, but I don't think the Eurozone economies are anything near strong enough for them to be able to sustain that. So I think they will reverse that, and when they do, that will be a very positive thing for the market. Uh, but 
I don't see, we've had a very long economic expansion, it's true, uh, and a lot of people are looking for the next recession, but because of these fears, I don't think you've got huge ebullience in the market, and tops are made out of huge ebullience in the market. So I think one can, um, markets are always a market of stocks rather than a stock market. One can find plenty of good stocks to invest in. Uh, for example, Redrock has a small stake in a company called Jupiter Mines that has a manganese asset in South Africa, one of the world's biggest and also one of the cheapest producers of manganese in the world. And China is importing more manganese as its domestic low-quality sources run out every year. And there's only one or two major manganese open pitable deposits left around the world that are going to be around for more than eight or ten years. Uh, and Jupiter's deposit with a hundred-year life is one of them. So the first half um, dividend amounted to about 16-17% after it got relisted earlier this year. And I would expect that with a full-year dividend, you must be looking, even if it were only half the first half dividend, you must be looking at over 20% yields for, from something with a 100-year life. And I have to say to yourself, why? Does that make sense? Isn't this rather cheap? So when you can find propositions like that, um, you've got, you can say, well, there are, there are always things that look a bit cheap in the market, but there are some things that look a bit cheap and have revenues and have dividends. Yeah. And of course, we, we would like to see um, the Jupiter price double, because if it did, then I think the Red Rock asset backing would virtually double as well. Yeah. So there's a reason for me picking that particular example. But there's a number of things out there. People go out and look. We've had a big setback. This is a good time to be fishing for value. Go out and look for the value. There are some good, solid, long-term commodities where demand is going to continue. And there are yeah, some... What, any particular commodities? Well, you know, manganese, over 90% goes into steel making. But <clears throat> there's a growing use in electric batteries um, where it is much cheaper than nickel or cobalt. Um, and of course, for the cathodes, people have used nickel and cobalt because you get high energy density and you have to have a certain amount of cobalt in order to get thermal stability at the moment. And technology is not developing very much. But if people could, they would use more manganese yeah. because it's much cheaper. And so over time, with the amount of manganese available in the market for non-steel uses being quite restricted and the decline in demand from China. I think just as you saw happen first with uh, cobalt, um, and, and, well, first with lithium, then with cobalt, and I'm beginning to happen perhaps with nickel, it's going to happen with manganese, is that the impact of uh, battery technology advances is going to create additional demand. As I say, I, I really like cobalt still. I like copper. Electric cars use much more copper than traditional ones. Yeah. You're still going to need, I think, copper wires to transmit electricity. So there we've really got you know, cobalt, copper, nickel. 65% um, of nickel or more goes into stainless steel. Um, and Stainless steel used to be growing at about 6% a year. When you think about it, it's a great middle-class metal because when people move into cities from the countryside and their incomes go up, they're using it in their offices, yeah. they're using it in their houses, they're plugging things in which contain stainless steel, they're driving things that contain stainless steel, they're using bus shelters that are maybe made of stainless steel. So there's that increasing need. Yeah, for the, and from 2008, mm. you, you've got a real setback of the global financial crisis. But if you look at the last year or two, that demand is beginning to pick up yeah. towards its historic growth rate. And if you look at that part of the nickel that isn't used for stainless steel, then the you know, several times as much, three or four times as much nickel being used in electric car batteries as there is cobalt. And um, if you look at how much nickel is being produced compared with how much cobalt, well, it's not far behind. Yeah. So I think the pressure will start to build on nickel. As I say, it's a very, very long bear market. So that's extremely good for Regency mines. 
where we have clung on to the world's biggest resources of nickel through the whole of that bear market. And we suffered a lot, and our shareholders suffered a lot, and probably our reputations suffered a lot, because we always said, we are sure that in the end, this is going to come right. Yeah. So let's move on to, obviously, Regency Mines and uh, Redlock Resources, which you're both the executive chairman for both companies. Just wondered if you can give us a, a brief overview of both companies, um, where you are now, what you're looking to do in the future. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that when the times were good in 2010, we were looking at Regency and Redlock's destinies gradually diverging. Although, once they reached a certain size, you might have decided that actually their destinies converged and you can make a bigger company by uniting them. Um, when each one is down to a few million market capitalization, the costs of a merger would be disproportionate uh, in, in terms of value. And you'd have you'd end up with a pretty small company with too wide a range of minerals in it. Yeah. So at the moment, their destinies are separate and it looks as if it will stay that way for a while. As Regency grows, it became very small at the bottom, as I say, it had the disadvantage of not having immediate revenue production in prospect, which Redrock did have uh, from Jupiter, if nothing else, we would have that. Um, with Regency, we pared back staffing, even the board of directors, to a bad minimum, and um, we pared back our salaries, really. Um, and I think that now we're looking at better times, we've gone into coal, metallurgical coal in the United States and we are producing metallurgical coal the last several months and we expect that to be a good profit generator and we plan on a roll-up of metallurgical coal companies with the eventual aim in a couple of years of seeking a listing for that independently in North America. Um, we, we have that for the nickel cobalt and we have the coal in Regency and we expect that company to go rapidly from here. As it does, we want to fill out that management structure. And I want to get away from the position where I am essentially executive chairman of both companies. So um, we've got to have more other faces appearing um, in the management there. I mean, we do have a couple of us, myself and Scott Kynes, who are doing pretty much everything in Regency and Redrock. But we need to build that out again. And um, in how, are you, how, how are you looking to do that? Well, first of all, a non-exec. Yeah. But as soon as the company is stabilised and we can say, right, you know, we've got now good visibility a year ahead, then I think we want to address the executive side of the equation. Um, but naturally, if someone's coming in as an executive, you've got to be showing them good prospects and you've got to have a very clear... Um, of vision of what you're doing, but yeah. you've also got to be able to prove it. So Regency's come out of what you might call kind of casualty mode. In the case of Red Rock, um, we're much more advanced, and some of uh, the Red Rock, the Red Rock story is it's one that runs in a slightly different way. Is we don't have just two big projects. We have some investments, and we tend to have partners in. Uh, what, what we do as, as, as we do in Regency, but um, we um, have a policy there of developing assets and then s selling them out and leaving ourselves with an interest, maybe a royalty and so on. Okay. So yeah, it's a bit more of a corporate finance. Is it structure to it? Yeah, um, because one thing we must recognize is that as developers of projects, which we've been, because we've got coal into operation uh, in Regency. We've got um, gold into operation in Red Rock. We've got manganese into operation with our colleagues in Red Rock. And we've got ferrous silicon into operation in Red Rock. Getting things into operation with our limited capital, you may think, how do we do it? Well, the answer is we have to go into partnerships. Uh, we have to a considerable extent either to put in the last dollar yeah. or we have to borrow other people's balance sheets by working with them. That's just common sense, yeah. because for us, the cost of money is relatively high. So we've done that, but we've always been focused on production. And that, I think, is something that makes us quite different, is that we have not just said, talk the talk about production and revenues, we've actually done it. Yeah, yeah. And what countries uh, are these projects in? 
because I imagine obviously if they're if they're across the world and you've got an interest in quite a few different projects, obviously there's going to be a lot of different cultural issues, political, economic issues. Yeah. How do you sort of manage all of those diverse diverse projects in diverse economic uh, economies in in obviously different countries? Well, when things are going well. Of course, it's very it's busy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because the reporting lines work, everything ticks over smoothly. It's only when problems arise um, or when you're planning sort of a big financing uh, or look, looking at a new project that you find that, that your resources are quite stretched. I suppose you have to, it's when you're looking to disrupt what your company doing. So well, well, if, it's running, if it's running along smoothly, yeah. that's fine. It's obviously when you're looking to change and do something mm. different. But if things are running along too smoothly, then we're probably not doing our job yeah. because we should be sweating our assets and are always challenging, um, yeah. which is what we try to do. And, we, and I'll tell you why we have to do that. I think it's because if you look at the cost of running a name company, I don't think it could be done if you're to comply with all regulations properly and uh, have audits and have an online presence and reduce the accounts, do all the other things you're meant to do, I don't think it can be done for less than £400,000 or okay? Yeah. Now, imagine that you're, say, a £2 million listing. Well, £400,000 is 20%. Now, the best fund manager in the world can't regularly get 20%. That means that this is a zero-sum game which people can't make money from. Even if you have a four million pound company, that's a 10% per annum headwind. So, yes, so if you're that size, you have to know that, that if that's your market capitalization, you have to know your assets are worth much more, that you're going to be able to extract the value of those assets, convince people of that value, and you're going to be able to escape the gravitational force of the black hole sits in the centre of the Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, you know, I think in 2015, 2016, things looked quite bad. We said, you know, for ourselves, our reputations, for the shareholders, we're going to get this out of here. Yeah. And if you look at us since that time, we haven't had any discounted share issues. We have been extremely um, innovative in the way that we have brought in capital and finance. Um, we are determined to create per share value. Um, nothing, of course, is just a straight line up. I think we've done reasonably well. Yeah. What challenges would you say you have faced over the last one or two years? And sort of how did you overcome them? Or any, anything major that, that you see? Yeah, I think the challenge has really been for the second half of that period, we've been fighting an adverse market. Um, and I, that's anybody who's got that's a portfolio and is looking at it regularly will understand what I'm talking about there. It doesn't, of course, sometimes stop shareholders from looking at us and saying, the share price is done, the management must be terrible. But um, the, the, tr the truth is, I think, that we have a set of close colleagues, those of us who work in the office, and those consultants that we use, who work incredibly hard, and um, Scott and myself, and Russ indeed, are quite often all in the office well below 8 o'clock at night, yeah. and working over the weekend, and um, until a couple of weeks ago, we had a period of two or three months where we were on the move country to country, almost out of time. So, uh, and this is a busy time of year because we're producing annual reports and yeah. accounts. So we didn't want to be out of the office, but sometimes that's just what you have to do. So we, we do work hard, and when we travel, you know, we try to travel economy, unless of course someone else is picking up the tab. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes we're in the economy, but um, we don't we don't push the boat out. We are running these companies lean like small companies because our object is not to run them as lifestyle companies. It would be absolutely crazy to do that um, and take as little holiday as we do. We're trying to run these companies so that we have something we can be proud of. Yeah. And um, we think there's enormous potential in the projects we have. 
and um, <laughs> we have it's our task is to realise that potentially. Yeah, what's what's the future for both Red Rock and Regency um, over the I suppose medium medium to long term? What what are you looking to achieve moving forward, or what would you like to achieve? Each of them has to get into a situation where it can take on one new big project or make a discovery that are going to put them into a different orbit. What we've been trying to do in the last two or three years is just put really solid foundations in there and, and put ourselves in a position where we can't be blown off course by merely financial phenomena in the outside world. Um, but the next step of growth will depend on the decisions still to be taken and I think probably on assets not currently part of the portfolio. Okay. Um, I suppose one question that I've, I've just thought of, um, and I imagine that a lot of people listening um, may be involved in or would like to get involved in, um, and that may be looking at shares and buying shares. What, what advice would you give someone if they're looking to buy shares in a company, what they should actually be looking at? Well, is there the, anything in the yeah. that? And I, I think AIM, AIM investors have got relatively good at this through having had a lot of um, uh, a lot of disappointments. They've got good at one thing, which is they can see when a company is short of money and is going to need to raise money and dilute them. They can see, I think, when a company is trying to promote itself, particularly if it's trying to promote in order to raise money. So they probably done it too late. Yeah. So I think um, what you want to see when you look at a company is a combination of a good project with a path to production or cash flow and a management that is dedicated to producing that cash flow. And that doesn't mean that they talk. They talk about, you know, we'd like to do this, or this is our object, or we think this is a great object, or we're doing a feasibility it means that they're taking some concrete actions. Yeah, this is what we've done so far, yeah. and this is what we're looking to, to achieve based on what we've just just done. Yes, um, you know, you can always invest in exploration companies, and there'll be no increase in value as great as that of a company that has um, a pasture with cows one day and suddenly finds mineralization that could be economic there the next, because that rise in value is going to be very great. Um, then you usually get through the exploration process um, a period where you don't get much value creating because companies are trying to raise money and they don't have so much news. And as you go through going from, say, an inferred indicated resource to a proven resource to a reserve to uh, raising the finance for development, you're going to have shortages of news and you're going to have uh, a lot of money being raised. Yeah. So this is often a time when prices go backwards. Uh, but when a company is actually moving into the last lap before production, and when it comes into production, usually after a short period, um, you'll get a quite often good performance again. So you know you can play the you can play the early stage exploration game, which is partly just picking you know, the right people or maybe the right commodity. Um, uh, and having a, having a selection of stops so that you're not dependent on just one because it's a lucky dip. Yeah. Uh, and you should have one or two companies where you really have confidence that they're going to do the thing which is what we believe in, which is producing. And when I look at something like Jupiter Mines, okay, I mean, people say Jupiter is different from us. Yes, they are. But you look at a company like that, which we're involved in, and you say, well, if they produce um, the last three or four years, if you look at the dividends they produced, it was 10, 12%, which I suppose now the price is down, which is probably 11 to 13%. This year, um, with increased production and increased prices, uh, it might be over 20%, and it's got years and years to run, and there are some positive factors for manganese, like the decline in Chinese production, like the demand of manganese for batteries, uh, and the fact that other open pitable resources around the world are substantial, are running out, and this one is on. You say, okay, I feel that this is a good, sound, long-term investment 
that's going to pay for itself if it would return. Now, why would an investor not want to invest in something like that? Because if you've got some um, technology, uh, or if you're making shoes, they can go out of fashion or they can be replaced. Yeah. But minerals, on the whole, the world is going to continue to need. Now, there have been some qualifications to that in the early 20th century. Zinc was a sort of hot metal, and then it became a very dull one for many years, and demand didn't increase, and price was poor. But when one looks at, say, nickel in Regency, um, say, manganese in Red Rock, is there anything that we think can disturb the pattern of growth in those? And I've looked at it very hard, and I really think that there isn't. Okay. I was going to move on to, and I'm going to slowly wrap this up, but the last question was around um, countries and continents. Where do you see most most growth or most tr- uh, attractiveness from a minor perspective, either from a country or from a particular continent? Is there anything that you're, or any continent or country you're focusing on, or is it just mm. having a look at everything around the world, um, and if it stacks up and... It's, a, it's a, an investment, you go, you go with it. Yeah, I, I mean, that's interesting. Uh, we have been looking at a new country in Africa recently, one that I used to say we'd never, never do anything in, that's Congo. Okay. And people yeah. say, well, isn't it corrupt? I'd say, well, actually, I would say that many more developed countries in Africa are more endemically corrupt. Yeah. The corruption that's been in Congo has been the uh, ones try dealing with the government, getting the big licenses in the first place. It's a bit, a bit, a bit of a political plaything. Um, but once you're working there and operating, the system is actually surprisingly good. And I, I'm not going to name other company, countries that people would think much better of and explain how they're worse because it would be uh, counterproductive yeah. for us. But I can assure you that um, there, are, there are many worse places than Congo. And I think the last month or two, um, we've been working with a joint venture there where we got some licenses identified for us. And well, it's a period just before an election. And I said, You've got to get this tied down to our local partners. Yeah. Uh, because as you get near an election, money talks. I mean, we know this because yeah. in America, political finance is always uh, has a scandal attached to yeah. it. In this country, it, 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 political it finance has a scandal attached to it. Ask the Electoral Commission, they're always looking into stuff. Now, because why would people give money to a political party? It doesn't make sense. Unless you think it's something bad. In America, it might be an ambassadorship. Here, it might be a knighthood. But not in every case. Now, in Africa, what have politicians got to offer in order to raise money to win elections? Hmm. Not very much. Um, So, when you get towards an election, I'm afraid... You have a combination of investors from some Asian countries who are pretty free with the money when they think it's strategic for them to do so, and people wanting to get elected on the other side, and bad things can happen. Yeah. Um, and probably one or two things like that in Congo have affected us. But we've got a good feeling now of having looked at that for a year or two, that actually this is not a bad place to operate, that you can do it. Um, that, as we have noticed in some other parts in Africa, the standard of technical formation, uh, education uh, in the French system of people like engineers, geologists, and so on, is actually pretty good. Yeah. And um, uh, we like the people that we meet. And so, given the huge natural wealth of Congo uh, in gold, in copper, in cobalt, in manganese, in probably oil and other things, diamonds, um, this must be the coming country. Mm. Because whereas, you know, for example, if you look at the worldwide, at the grade of new gold mines opened, I think it's just over two grams a tonne. I think in West Africa, where there's perhaps been a little less exploration, it's about 2.2, 2.3. I don't know. My figures are a couple of years out of date. Yeah. But in Congo, I think you can find... Uh, as Rand girl, I know from there, if I mind, um, you can find substantially higher um, uh, grace because, first of all, you had Mobutu, then you had Civil War, 
and you've had corruption. With all these problems, um, there has been a hiatus in serious exploration for decades. And yet we know, for example, one of the richest gold belts runs through the north of Congo. Uh, we know that the uniquely rich copper mineralization of the Congolese side of the Zambian Congo copper belt um, still contains a lot of potential. We know that the, most of the world's cobalt comes from Congo. So, so it is a country. Yeah, it's a country that now that they're getting things sorted out. Yeah. Uh, with, you know, I think international agencies and governments have actually done a good job of going in and helping them. Um, so, a combination of that and Chinese capital, some of which has gone into infrastructure, has has helped. Um, and I think the country is reaching the takeoff stage. There was a time when um, the the province in Congo that contains most of the minerals, um, Lubumbashi, the capital, people used to fly from South Africa to Lubumbashi for medical treatments when the Belgians were still there, and it was very, very advanced and very rich. Now, if you got ill in Lubumbashi, I think you take the first flight out to South Africa. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the pendulum has swung, it's perhaps swung too far, because there is infrastructure, there are uh, educated people, and so my number one pick for a country to back would be Congo. Okay. That's, that's good to hear. And I suppose, I suppose it might be a country that you may have put you previously, probably because the number of challenges that you needed to uh, overcome to get anything happening. And it's probably a very slow process compared to other developing countries in Africa. So... Um, but if the, the opportunity is there, then the challenges come with it and it's just getting, getting to grips with it and, and overcoming it and just perse perseverance. Yes, and I think in our case, we've been very patient. We, we got together with good people to start with locally, mm -hmm. uh, some of the best people available, and we um, are very professional and we have worked with them. We've had to be very patient. We've, we've worked our way to an understanding of the system and also, we do speak a little bit of French. And surprisingly, you take that country with its heritage speaking French. There's no French companies that I'm aware of there. And even the Canadian companies that are there don't seem to be French speaking Canadian companies. No, no. So that you've got Australians, South Africans, um, some Canadians, very few British, but, uh, and the Chinese. Yeah. But uh, going there and being able to speak French as well as English is probably an advantage. It certainly is, and I know from a recruitment perspective, when certain companies ask for French-speaking um, technical staff or senior management, I know they're, they're hard to find and few, few and far people, so yeah. yeah, I understand where you're coming from. Um, right, I want to slowly wrap up. Uh, just the last five minutes or so, I just want to uh, ask a few quick-fire questions. Um, so, why do you enjoy mining? Um, well, it's hard to say. I think when you're doing something, you might as well enjoy it. Yep. is one thing. But I think when I look back, it has been very interesting to visit all these mountains, deserts, meet all these people in different places, understand those countries, cultures, cope with the discomforts of travel, cope with um, dealing with people who may have very different ways of doing things than us, facing challenges and solving them. And I think there's a certain satisfaction in all of that. And if I've been sitting at a desk in front of a computer, all the time, challenges. not that everyone really does that, but it would be it would have been a less interesting. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Who's been the most uh, influential person on you in your mining career? Um, I know, I suppose coming from a finance background, you might not necessarily have someone that's directly influenced. Um, I mean, it could be someone like Warren Buffett who invests in, who actually invests in companies and, and obviously taking his, taking some of his um, recommendations on looking at particular companies to invest. So, yeah, who, who, who would you say the most influential person? Looks like I think one can, one, learns a lot just by reading about people yeah. and by being familiar with what they do from being in the same industry. You don't have to have been meeting and working with them 
in order to do that. But <clears throat> I would say um, that the people who've built companies in this area have all influenced one to some degree. One looks and sees what did they do right. Um, somebody we have worked with, who's our partner in Allinghurst and uh, in Jupiter Mines and Chippy, um, was Brian Gilbertson, who was chief executive of BHP, and obviously um, seeing how he did that, which becomes more interesting when you actually work with him a bit, and then seeing how well the Chippy Mine has been developed, yeah. and how consistently good the management has been. And I'm going to say good, I don't mean the mistakes are made. I'm saying that when you have a good management, when they make a mistake, it's the way they recover from it and how fast they do it. Yeah. That is impressive. Yeah. Um, I'd say that the development of the cheaper mine could be a business school study in how to do something like that. Okay. Um, so if I had to choose one example, which I know in an interview like this, <laughs> we don't have time to go through a great number of examples, so I have to select one. That would be it. Okay. Um, is there anything else you still want to achieve? Um, what sort of global dominion? I, they are. Actually, I would like to see us take these companies to the level where they can um, grow very much larger and ultimately be, well, first of all, we have to make them institutional stocks, um, which I think you know, is a focus of what we're doing now, so that we have institutional shareholders. And when you become an institutional stock, what you must expect is that in a few years, if you don't grow very fast, somebody's going to take you over. Yeah. And if you're not institutional stock, probably people don't want to take you over anyway. Yeah. But I think we must move these companies to the point where they're institutional stocks. Um, and then the answer is either you become so big you go like other people or you get taken over. Yeah. Either would be potentially but you to get shareholders. But in the end, this is a financial business. You have to get shareholder returns. Yeah. Um, but it's a long-term financial business. And when our price suffers and returns suffer, it is, as we've learned, because of the disconnect between the time horizon on which we think we're working as explorers and developers and the time horizon in which investors want to get their returns. And superimposing that on the business and the normal mining cycle can produce sharp ups and downs. We've been through the sharp down. Now our responsibility is to benefit in the upward leg, which I don't think is going to be very sharp and very pronounced. I think it's going to be gradual over a period. Um, historically, we have always outperformed a rising market. I regret to say we've underperformed a falling market. Um, <clears throat> and so what we have to do is put right the things that caused us to underperform a falling market while retaining those characteristics that cause us to outperform a rising market. I think we're pretty well positioned for that at the moment. Um, but it's a constant challenge. Because we can't be where we are now in another two years. We have to have developed and be somewhere different. Yeah. And um, so we have to we have to grow, we have to recruit new people, we have to have new ideas. If we don't uh, if we don't change the company and make it grow, then we'll have, then really we ought to turn it over to somebody else to do yeah. that. Yeah. Where do you see the future of mining? Mm. It'll always be necessary. Yeah. And that's one good thing about it, is that because it's always necessary, it'll always be there. And therefore, what you should be trying to do is find yourself with a key, a core asset in a particular commodity um, that you, you can stick with. Uh, in manganese, clearly we've got it because we've got something that's going to outlive all of us. Um, in gold mines tend often to be quite short life, except for the very big ones. Uh, we'd like to have long-term gold project. We'd like to have a long-term copper project. And we'd like to have a coal company that had 
um, a long-term strategy and was self-renewing. I think in Coal, you know, our, our business there were acting as traders as well as producers. And you have to be, because yeah. you have to be mixing product with different characteristics and matching it to the customers. So that's a different kind of business. Um, but uh, I find all these businesses very interesting. Yeah. They're producing great challenges. And when I look at where we've come from, in 2005 when we listed, we literally had no money. We thought raising £400,000 before expenses was a great triumph. Yeah. And we wrote a lot of the prospectus ourselves and did a lot of the work ourselves to save professional costs. So I think that the total cost of listing Regency was 60000 was about 64000 for Red Rock. That was including um, what you pay for fundraising. And mm. you certainly couldn't do that now. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And so though we've been through some switchbacks and there have been times when people, uh, we visited shares too high or people have bought shares too high and lost a lot of money, um, the underlying business has grown and I think we're now at the stage where we can really take off. Yeah. Um, and what I'd like to do is we'd like to make back more money than we ever lost. Not just in absolute terms, but in percentage terms as well. Yeah. And that will certainly keep us busy in the next three or four years. Yeah. And lastly, any advice that you'll sort of give any mining professionals in the industry to sort of, uh, I suppose, develop themselves? And I suppose from your background, being a mining analyst, it, and I have, I've come across a few candidates and I actually uh, placed a candidate into mm. a role uh, as a mining analyst. Any advice that you give someone that may want to change direction, that may have been working in a consultancy, that may have been working in an operation, but they want to, they want a different direction and probably move potentially into a mining analyst role. Um, is there any advice what you would give them? And is there any attributes that they uh, need? Yeah, I would say that if you're planning to become a mining analyst, try to start off with a big broker or a big bank. Yeah. Um, because it's, they give a great kind of free training and it's always easier to move to a smaller one later, but it's not so easy to move from a small house to a bigger one. And so you know, if, when I started, start work at Morgan Grenfell or Morgan Stanley or one of the big uh, places was great because you got on the job training there that was unrepeatable and a variety of experience so always try to do that Um, try not to start off in something that's very marginal or very small uh, broker yeah okay well Appreciate your time, Andrew, and thanks for taking your, your time to discuss your journey and give us an insight to Red Rock um, and Regency Mines, um, and also the, uh, the finance and private equity space, which I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be uh, really interested in. If our audience wants to contact you, how can they go about doing this? Um, my telephone number, um, which I'm very happy to receive calls mainly, um, 07766. 474849, or you can get our office number from our website, websites, um, or just write to me as Andrew at, and then either of the websites. Okay, yeah. And are you on any social media platforms? Um, that we use? Yeah, I'm on WhatsApp. Yeah. Uh, Twitter, I have uh, a business account that tweets a bit. Yeah. But what we do have is we have a uh, RRR PLC yeah. web, uh, Twitter account and we have a Regency corporate Twitter account. Yeah. And that's handled by me and other people. Yeah. So either look at either of those two web- websites or Twitter accounts, that's Red Rock Resources yeah. and Regency uh, Mines. Alternatively, you can contact myself via rob at mining-international.org and you can ask me any questions and I can pass them on to Andrew. So, for another episode, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and until next time, happy mining. Thanks for listening to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. If there are any topics you want discussed or questions you want to ask any guests, then you can email us at rob at mining-international.org 
or you can follow Rob and Mining International on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube for more content and to have your questions answered. Until next time, happy mining.